Happy Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. We are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead this Sunday. And so it is a happy Lord's Day. That doesn't mean all of you are happy. Some of you might be going through difficult seasons in life. I know some of that is true for some of you as we've talked and shared life this week and shared Jesus. But we know that there's hope. There is light because our shepherd not only gave his life for us, but he rose from the dead. And that's what we're celebrating this morning as he leads us, as his presence is with us, and as his rod and staff comfort us, the Lord walks with us because he's a risen Lord. He's a risen shepherd. And so we praise him this Lord's day. My name is PJ. I'm one of the four pastors here at BBC, and we're um, happy you're here this morning. We'd like to welcome you uh, as we seek to share life and share Jesus together. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. This is a topical message, and so we're going to be all over the Bible, but Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 is a good passage to read to think about ethnic harmony. So this message is titled, For Ethnic Harmony and Against Ethnocentrism or Ethnocenteredness. That's what we want to do. We want to be for ethnic harmony. We want to grow in that and toward that. And we want to grow in opposing ethnocentrism. As you turn to Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, let me just say this again by way of introduction. So every year on this weekend, we preach, I preach, Uh, From this pulpit, there's a sermon for ethnic harmony opposed to ethnocentrism. And then next week, we do a sermon on um, against abortion and for preserving life. And we do that every January, these two Sundays. It's not something we're just doing this year because it's trendy. Uh, We've done it every year since I've been here. And um, this, this weekend is no different than the previous years. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who have no voice. For the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We pray now that you would speak. We want to speak up. We want to judge righteously. We want to defend the cause of the truly oppressed and the truly needy. We want to speak up for those who have no voice and for for justice, true justice, for all who are dispossessed. But we need your help for this, Lord. We need your discernment. We need your truth. We need your spirit to guide us. And so we want to abide in Christ and have his words abide in us that we might bear much fruit. So Father, help me to teach And preach faithfully, help us all to hear your word, to discern your truth, your biblical truth, to discern error in what I say, if if there are things that are wrong, to dispense with that, and to grow in what is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Tomorrow is one of the reasons we, we preach on Martin Luther, or we preach this Sunday on ethnic harmony is because it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow. And the reason we preach on the Sanctity of Life next Sunday is because it's Sanctity of Life Sunday, the Roe v. Wade uh, 1973 decision. And so we, we preach that next week. 
So I open, I want us to think about some of the things Martin Luther King Jr. has said in his letter from a Birmingham jail, his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Raise your hand if you've read that letter before. Raise it up. Okay. I'll be a quarter of you. Okay, my prayer and my exhortation is to you that all of you would read it. I sent it by email to the church family, so you could look it up there. I have some copies to give away tonight, and it might even be good for our discussion tonight. So you could read it before the evening gathering. That would be fitting and wise. Well, let me give you a few quotes that Martin Luther King Jr. said in this letter. As he was uh, arrested for uh, a protest in Birmingham, Alabama, when he was put in jail, Eight clergymen from different religions, Protestants, Roman Catholic, and Jews, um, wrote a letter and put it in the newspaper on why it's unwise to do protests and why there need to be patience and caution and wisdom in bringing about ethnic harmony or what they would call racial justice. And so he wrote a response. He wrote notes on a newspaper on the newspaper there, and then later put those notes into a letter that was published three days or four days later. And this is what here are some quotes from the the letter. And this is why it's relevant for our church family. He says, when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama, a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among the strong, our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind anesthetizing security of the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows more cautious than courageous later on in the letter he says in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the negro i have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice i have heard many ministers say talking to me and to pastors those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern end quote end quote of the ministers and i have watched many churches commit themselves to complete to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange unbiblical distinction between the body and the soul between the sacred and the secular and then he talks about how he has tears of love over the body of Christ. Even though he's critiquing the church, he speaks as one who loves the church and is part of the church, at least according to what he's saying. And he says this, yes, these questions are still in my mind. Uh, in deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. He goes on to say, so often the contemporary church is weak, ineffectual, is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often is it an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. And though it was mostly bad for, for Martin Luther King in his day as he looked at the churches, he was thankful as he saw evidences of grace in the church. He says this, but again, I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. 
They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia with us. They have gone down the highways of the South on torturous rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. Some have been dismissed from their churches, have lost support of their bishops and fellow ministers, but they have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. So those were his hopes in 1963. I don't know exactly Martin Luther King Jr.'s gospel as he would present the gospel. We're going to present the gospel here. I'll present the gospel every week here. We confess the gospel. So we're clear on what we think the gospel is. So I'm not sure what he means by that here. I haven't, I'm not a Martin Luther King Jr. scholar. But this hope that the church will meet the challenge of their hour is a hope for every true Christian. Even those that, that disagree with MLK and even those who disagree today. We want the church to be faithful in, our, in this hour, right? We want to be faithful now. We want to be faithful as Christians. You want to be faithful as Christians. You want to be faithful as Bethany Baptist Church. And part of the problem is that we, we see a lot of Christians on both sides of the debate who disagree with each other. And so we don't know, um, sometimes we don't know exactly whose side to take because they both preach the same gospel, but they take different sides of the debate and they are otherwise faithful Christians and we, we just don't want to jump in a fight. We don't want to just take sides for the sake of taking sides. I'd, I'd rather just get rid of a debate and just all follow Jesus and follow the Bible, right? That's what we want to do. We just want to follow Jesus and follow the Bible. At the same time, we don't want to be indifferent to true suffering and love for our neighbors. We want to be truly biblical. Now, the fact is that there is disagreement among true churches and among gospel preaching churches. Let me say five things that we agree with. So I am, I'll just say my position. This is not the official position of Bethany Baptist Church as a church or even as the pastoral, as the pastor council. But I do believe, and I've said this last year in the sermon of the year, of, of that year, was that I do think ethnocentric oppression does exist. There's a discussion and d disagreement among, among Christians whether it actually exists today, particularly towards African Americans today. I believe it does. Whether you believe it does or doesn't is a debated issue. But there are ethical entailments of that debate. If you don't think it exists, then there are certain ethical responsibilities in line with, with confronting those who say it does exist. And if, if it does exist, then there are ethical entailments of loving your neighbor as yourself in that regard, of speaking up, un, uh, um, up against their ethnocentric oppression and discipling others against it. So those are two sides among Bible-believing, uh, justification by faith alone, uh, Jesus being truly God, truly man, dying for sinners and rising from the dead type Christians, okay? Now, let me say some things that we agree on, because sometimes they say that we disagree on this, and there might be disagreements out there, but not at least here with those from the other side. Uh, I'm not teaching that all people are either oppressed or oppressors. There are oppressed people and there are oppressors. And some people can unintentionally oppress others, and we'll talk about that today. At least I'll just show you that biblically that's a category. But not everyone is an oppressor or oppressed. So we agree on that. I agree with that with those on the other side. Secondly, um, and I'm using the categories from another person here, another theologian, not my words, but uh, white people, this is what he, uh, he'll talk about white people, are not uh, effectively white supremacists by virtue of being white. And I agree with that. You're not uh, a white supremacist or a, an oppressor just by virtue of your skin color. That's just not biblically true. Okay? 
And I'm, I'm not, even though I'm on the other side of this, I don't think that's true. I mean, we all agree on that. We agree on that. A third thing we agree on is um, we shouldn't exchange retributive justice for distributive justice. That's a false dichotomy. Retributive justice is punishing evil and crimes in the world. Great. There's a thing about distributive justice and there's a debate about that. I don't think there's a, there's a dichotomy. It's not you have to choose one or the other. So I agree with them there that we don't have to get rid of retributive justice. A fourth thing that I agree with with this particular theologian uh, on the other side is that we should work for equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Because you can't control everyone's decisions and what they do. But we should work for equality of opportunity. And the fifth thing that I agree with with this person that I disagree with on the stance on ethnic harmony in, the, in our di direction of discipleship, fifth thing we agree on is that gender and uh, sexual normativity. So we believe that God makes m m um, humans male and female. Their biological sex is their gender. And we believe that marriage is between husband and wife, one man, one woman, in a covenant commitment for a lifetime. And that any sexual activity outside of the marriage bed is sexual immorality and sinful and evil. So we believe those things. And to say that, some people say that, well, those are bad things and those are oppressive. It's oppressive if you say that there are males and, male and, males and females and that there are biological sex is your gender and that sexuality is within the marriage bed of a covenant commitment. Some people say that if you believe that, you're oppressive or that's oppressive. Well, if they say that, I agree with this brother here that um, those are not bad things. Those are biblically true and good and helpful things. And being able-bodied, having, having, not having disabilities and having the privilege of having an able body, at least temporarily, is a good thing. It is a privilege, but it's a good thing. It's not something to feel guilty about. Okay, so those are things um, I agree with, and I think I would commend that we should all agree with whatever side we are on the debate. Okay, everyone okay there? In terms of just the, the common debate, if you're familiar with what's going on out there. Here's my goal today from 1 Timothy 1.5. 1 Timothy 1.5 has a goal for teaching, and here it is. 1 Timothy 1.5 says... Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's the goal of Christian instruction. That's the goal of preaching. That's the goal of all Christian teaching, teaching the Bible. We want love, Christian, biblical, Trinitarian love that comes from a pure heart that hates sin and loves God. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith in what the Bible teaches and who Jesus truly is and what he's saying and leading us to do today. Okay, so that's the goal here. Now, we might be divided here in our church in some ways. We have disagreements. Not everyone agrees on every single issue and on every single thing. So there's disagreement and diversity here, even of views in our church. But we are united on a few things. So let me just remind us what we're, on, what we're united as a church. We are united on Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus is God. He's truly God and truly man. In one person, two natures. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for sinners. He rose from the dead, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and to take his bride to be with him in the new earth forever. We agree on that. We agree on who Jesus is. Secondly, we agree on our church confession, if you're a member of this church. We agree on our confession of faith. That's what we have agreed upon as members of this church. We've also agreed that we can disagree on things not in that statement. Okay, so we agree on our confession of faith as a church. So we are united as a church. Third thing we agree on is our church covenant. We agree on our commitments and responsibilities to each other as church family, even in the midst of diversity and even disagreement. So I want to remind you of our unity in the midst of preaching on something that is potentially divisive if you forget about these things. Okay? One more thing that we agree on specifically. In our confession of faith, it says this, Article 16. 
Recognizing whose created order this is, every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of scriptural principles of righteousness, truth, and love. Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause without compromise to Christ. That's what we believe as a church, as in our church confession. Improvement of society can be permanently helpful only when rooted in the regeneration of individuals. So if people are not born again, there's no permanent change, right? I mean, there's no eternal change if they're not born again. But still, we still work for righteousness and the this, this sway of, of general truth and righteousness in government, industry, and society as a whole. Okay, so we might disagree on many things, but as a church, we agree on that. And so what I want to do is I want to do... I, I, I don't want to assume that all of you have been here in the past for teaching on things, and even if you do, we need good reviews. So I want to go through some key points in the Bible storyline so you can have a, a good um, biblical thinking and theological thinking about ethnic harmony and ethnicity. And then, on a more debated point, I want to apply it to our context here in the United States. And that's where you could have disagreement because I'm going to leave Bible teaching to start taking our context and ta talking about that and then how the two apply. Okay? You guys with me? Okay, so it's hard to take notes. It's going to feel somewhat like a lecture maybe perhaps, but let's go through these things. It's important for us as a church family to think about these things. So we might disagree on all of these things, uh, many things. We shouldn't disagree on what the Bible teaches. So I have, let me see here. I have eight things that I think the, that the Bible teaches, and then I'm going to do application with a ninth and tenth thing. Okay, so eight things that the Bible teaches. My ninth thing is going to be kind of the American situation, and then the tenth thing is some application to close. Okay, so... 10 points, we should agree on the first eight, nine and 10, I think we'll agree on 10, but maybe nine we might get a little, wheels might start falling off the wagon for some of us, but that's okay. All right, we can keep the conversation going. And even tonight in our evening gathering, we'll do a Q&A um, just thinking about these issues. Okay, so let's start in the Bible, the beginning of your Bible, we're just gonna kind of go through. So Genesis one, we're gonna do three passages here in Genesis or four passages here. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 28. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it says, Genesis 1, 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So here's point one. God made humans in his image. God made humans in his image. All humans are made in the image of God. Okay, so all humans are made in the image of God. And Tim Chester says very helpfully, he says, um, the image of God is not inherent it's not an inherent reality in all humans. It's a relational reality in all humans. So it's not inherent just because you're human, you're made in God's image. That's sort of true. But it's true because you are made in relationship to your creator. Because every human is created by God in his image, part of that image-ness is that they're in a relationship with God. So every human, born and unborn, of every ethnicity, they're all made in the image of God and they have a relationship with their creator as God their creator and them as his image bearers. Okay, that's number one. Number two, um, God called humanity to fill the earth with his image and glory. So number one, all humans are in God's image. Number two, God called humanity to fill the earth with his image and glory. Look at Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, and then what? 
fill the earth and then subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God calls humanity here to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, to spread out across the earth. Why? Greg Beale says that the, the garden is like the temple of God, and God puts his image. You, you put images in a temple, but God doesn't put any graven images. He puts humans in that temple. And then he calls them to fill the earth so that the whole earth becomes the temple of God, which is what you see in Revelation 21 22. That the whole earth would be the temple of God where God dwells, and God's image, his image bearers, would be all over that temple, everywhere. So they start in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, two humans, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the whole earth with people, with humans, who are in relationship with me and relationship with each other, so that my image and my glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's God's plan and God's commission to humanity to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's not just in Genesis 1.28. You go to Genesis 9. So that was given to Adam and Eve. Then it's given to Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Look at Genesis chapter 9. We're going through our Bible now. Now we're in Genesis 9. Genesis 9.1 says, God blessed, so they, there was a flood. Uh, God judged the whole earth. And so you still have one people group here, Noah's family. And then he tells him and his sons, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Genesis 9.1. So the command stands even after the flood and after the fall. Point three. God sentences all humanity to death and promises the defeat of the serpent. This is going back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 1 through 6, 1 through 7. God gave a command in Genesis 2 that you are not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day, of you, eat, in the day you eat of that fruit, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve eat the fruit in Genesis 3, 1 through 6 by listening to the voice of the serpent and the words of the serpent, and they were deceived by the serpent, and so God judges them and sentences them to death. But in the middle of that sentencing to death, he gives a promise in Genesis three fifteen to the woman and to all humanity. I'll put hostility between you, serpent, or he makes a threat promise to the serpent. I'll put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, he, this offspring, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God prophesies that the offspring of this woman will come and defeat the serpent and implicitly redeem God's people. Okay? So God, so point three is God sentences all humanity to death and promises to save people from humanity in defeating the serpent. Okay? Point, that's point three. You guys tracking with me so far? This is a story of humanity? Okay, now, now let's get into a little bit more of the weeds. Go to Genesis chapter 11. Where does ethnicity, where do ethnic people groups begin? Where do they begin and why are they here? Genesis chapter 11. Look at Genesis chapter 11 with me, beginning in verse 1. Now, the whole earth had the same language and same vocabulary. So you have one language. You have one people group. Everyone has the same language and same vocabulary, chapter 11, verse 1. As people migrated from the east, because Noah and his son start spreading their descendants, right? But all same language, one people group. They migrated from the east there, and then they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick, stone, and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. And here's the problem now. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. What did God tell them? Be fruitful, multiply, and 
Fill the earth. To fill the earth, you need to scatter. You can't stay gathered. You need to scatter to fill the earth. They're saying, no, no, we want to stay together. We want to build a city. We want to build a tower. We want to build a name for who? For ourselves. And we don't want to scatter. This is rebellion against God. This is the pride and arrogance and selfishness of humanity. The self-exaltation, the self-centeredness of humans. Not just a single human, not individual sin here, a group sin. We want to exalt ourselves. Let's not, it's not let's make a name for PJ. Or let's make a name for John. Or let's make a name for Clark or for Peter. No, it's not make a name for yourself. It's make a name for us as a group. Not a name for our creator. And not scattered over the earth where his name is going to be seen everywhere because his image and glory is everywhere. Let's make a name for ourselves. This is rebellion. This is sinful. This is evil. Okay, but let's continue with the story. So what does God do? Does he just let them have one language and just build? No. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this one people... As one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them. Remember, they didn't want to scatter. The Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the languages, the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. God's saying, fine, you don't want to obey me? I'll make you obey me and scatter. I'll confuse your languages. So imagine this. If you have a group of people, and then they get split up into 30 languages, how many groups are you going to have? 30 groups. And they're going to scatter and spread, but they're going to spread with their own language. So you start talking to people until you can find someone who who speaks your language. And you start gathering together. Oh, I understand what you're saying. I don't understand what these people are saying. Imagine how crazy that would have been to all get new languages like right there in a group. And so you start hearing English. Oh, I I know what he's saying. I can understand those words. You start hanging out with English speakers. And so they spread. God judged them for their, their corporate unified rebellion against him. So God scattered them. But what what God did not do, notice what God did not do in the story. He does not take away their self-centered hearts. He doesn't take away their group-centered hearts. So where does group-centeredness come from? It comes right here. Because they already had one, they had group-centeredness, it was just one group. But now that you have all these language groups, now you have the English speakers against the Spanish speakers, against the Mandarin speakers, against the Tagalog speakers, against, you know, and so you have languages, and now with their still selfish hearts, now they want to build a name for themselves, but in opposition to and against the other language groups. And so now you have different groups with group-centeredness, and so here is where you have ethnocenteredness. This is the birth of ethnocenteredness, group-centeredness, okay? Now... We want to oppose ethnocenteredness, but I have this other phrase I've been using called ethnocentric oppression. What's ethnocentric oppression? Ethnocentric oppression is when you're seeking to build a name for your group, but then you're oppressing others with the ability and advantage and power you have over them. So we know what oppression is, right? So um, sadly, there's a lot of um, marital abuse, right? Domestic abuse. So if a husband is what's more typical, it's not always this way, but typically a husband, if a husband is, is um, physically beating his wife, he's oppressing her. They could both be self-centered, right? They could both be selfish and self-centered. But the one who's stronger can overcome and overwhelm and oppress the weaker. And that's, same, that's the same thing with people groups, 
Okay, it's the same thing with people groups. Uh, one ethnic people group, if they have power and they want to enforce their ethnocenteredness, their group centeredness on a competing group, they can use their power to oppress them. Not all groups are oppressive, but all groups can be ethnocentered. Okay, group centered. And so this here in Genesis 11 is the birthplace of ethnocentrism and really the, the starting point for ethnocentric oppression as God judges humanity and breaks them up into smaller groups. You, are you guys following me there? Okay, so when you look at today and you're looking at different groups that are, that are group-centered and then maybe oppression going on or at least attempts to, to, to take advantage of other groups or exploit other groups, um, this is the, the, the beginning of separate groups of humanity. Okay, number five. God commissions Abraham and promises to bless all the families of the earth, all the people groups of the earth. Okay, God commissions Abraham, if you're taking notes, God commissions Abraham and promises to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, go, so there's the commission, go. Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And here's the promise now. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here's the promise. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's not everyone on the earth, but everyone from every people group will be blessed through you. So here's a problem. You have all these people groups from Genesis 11 because they're rebellious. Well, guess what? God wants to bless them because they're cursed in their sin. How is God going to bless them? He's going to raise up a great nation, an ethnic people group through Abraham. And through this great nation, it's not for the great nation to be just exalted and, and oppress all the other groups. No, he's going to bless this great nation so that through this nation, he'll bless all the other ethnic people groups. You guys see that? That's God's promise in Genesis 12. Number six. God intends to redeem and bless the peoples through his royal priesthood, the nation of Israel. Or at least, he, yeah, the nation of Israel. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to go a little bit faster here just to pick up the pace. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, it says this. Um, now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my possession out of all the peoples of the, out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you'll be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So here, the nation of Israel is going to be the kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They mediate the blessing of God to those who don't have the blessing of God. That's what priests do. And so this nation will be a, a great nation, a kingdom of priests, who are mediating the blessing of Yahweh to the cursed people groups of the earth. That's their mission and their call. That's number six. God intends to redeem and bless the peoples through his royal priesthood, Israel. Number seven, Israel fails and is exiled. And so Jesus succeeds in their place. There's a whole lot of Bible there in the story. I just fast forwarded to New Testament. But that's where there's an overview, right? So Israel fails and God kicks them out of the land. They're exiled in Babylon. Ironically, Babylon again is where the people of God are scattered, right? Um, in 586 BC is the final destruction of Jerusalem. And so the, the Israel fails. They fail to keep the, the law covenant, the, the Israelic covenant given at Sinai. But Jesus succeeds in their place. So if you turn to Acts chapter 10, if you want to summarize the gospel of Mark, in a few verses, Acts chapter 10 is the summary, okay? A little clue for you. Peter's probably the source of Mark for the book of the gospel according to Mark. And here's Peter preaching a summary of Jesus' life in Acts chapter 10, verses 36 to 43. So here's a summary of the gospel. The gospel according to Peter. This could be, right? Here's a summary of Jesus Christ. Here, what did Jesus do? Uh, Peter says that God sent the message to the Israelites. We just talked about that. They were the holy nation, proclaiming the good news of peace. Oh, now that's the message, proclaiming the good, the good news of peace to Israel through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. 
You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Okay, speaking of the baptism. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny or the oppression of the devil. There's oppression. Because God was with him. Then Peter says, we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both Judean, the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. So Jesus died on the cross. Verse 40, God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And that goes back to the Old Testament. All the prophets of the Old Testament testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins. That's a good tight summary of the gospel, the gospel accounts, right? Jesus comes, he's baptized, he goes through the water just like Israel went through the water. Uh, the Red Sea, Jesus goes through the water in baptism. When Israel went through the Red Sea, they went to the wilderness for, for how long? 40 years. Jesus is thrust into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for how many days? 40 days. He quotes the Bible to Satan in the wilderness, the same texts that were used for Israel when they were in the wilderness. He uses, three, he uses wilderness texts to quote to Satan while he's in his wilderness. And then as Israel goes into the promised land and conquers the Canaanites is supposed to conquer the Canaanites and cast out all the evil and all that. Jesus is here now going throughout the land of the Judean country and Jerusalem and Galilee, casting out people who are oppressed under the tyranny of whom? The devil, right? And then, so he does everything that Israel was supposed to do. He perfectly fulfills the law covenant of Israel. He fulfills it. He obeys it. He keeps it. And then at the end, he tragically dies on the cross for sins and rises from the dead. And in his rising from the dead, I'm going to fast forward at least, what did, what did he accomplish in his death? In Revelation 7, 9, he purchased the people. In Revelation 5, 9 and Revelation 7, 9, he purchased the people from every tribe and language and people and nation to be his people through his death and his resurrection. That's what Christ accomplished on the cross. If you're not a Christian, let me just pause here because this is the most important message of Christianity. This is our message to you. Our message is a message about who Jesus is and what he's done. God sent his son, Jesus, into this world because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. God is holy and he created us. We are judged before God for our sins and our rebellion and our self-centeredness and our group-centeredness. For those sins, we deserve to be damned in hell forever, crushed under the wrath of God. God sent his son. He sent Israel to, to fulfill, to, to do this blessing. They failed. We failed. Adam failed, and here Jesus comes, and he fulfills the covenant, the law covenant, the Israelic covenant. He fulfills it in himself. He dies on the cross for sinners like you and me, and he rises from the dead on the third day. So that everyone, it says here in, in Acts 10, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. If you will trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior and your treasure, if you will turn from your sins and repent from your sins and your own goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, he will save you from your sins. He will forgive you of your sins. He will live in you. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to live in you and walk with you for the rest of your life and give you a place among God's holy nation, among his people, among his bride. The invitation is open now. If you're not a Christian, Jesus is inviting you through my mouth right now to repent from your sins and come to Jesus for salvation. Come to Jesus for salvation. Children, 
Come to Jesus for salvation. You hear this often. But Jesus is calling you even this morning again to repent from your sins, children, and come to Jesus for your salvation. Okay, so God saves people, all the people, through this man, Jesus. And so last point here in terms of the the Bible storyline point. So Jesus comes and saves his people. And now uh, point eight, the church is now the means or the instrument. The church is now the instrument, the royal priesthood to gather God's people from every ethnic people group to fill the earth with God's image and glory through redeemed sinners. Okay, sorry, that's a lot of words. The church is now the means, the church is now the royal priesthood to gather God's people from all EPGs, ethnic people groups, to fill the earth with his glory. So that means you, BBC, right? That means me. This is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. So Peter just told us here in, in, Acts, in Acts 10 that he commanded us to preach the, to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one. So that's our mission, to preach to the people that Jesus is the one. So 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 is a quote from Exodus 19, 5 through 6. So 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this. But you, Christians, you church, you are a chosen race. So there's two races, by the way. I'm going to talk about race as a social construct in a second. There are two races, the race in Adam and the race in Jesus Christ, at least from the Bible, okay? There's only two races, two, two humanities, you could say. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy ethnic people group, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy through Jesus Christ. You are the people of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. So if you're a Christian, you are now called to be part of the people of God. That's why you join a local church. If you're not a Christian, join a local church to express this holy nation. And then be part of that holy nation in making Christ known and discipling others to be, to, to, to know and enjoy Jesus. So we become the one group, the one tribe, the one nation, the one race. We are the one nation that is not self-centered or group-centered. We are the one nation that doesn't have to, to, to have to oppress uh, the, uh, um, the or we're, not, we're the one group that doesn't have to unrighteously disadvantage other nations or groups. You know why? What's the, what's the mission of this nation? Now, there are nations, every nation, praise God for nations on this earth, and praise God that they have a mission. But, but the, the holy nation's mission is a little bit different, right? The mission of the nation, the holy nation, the church, is a God-centered mission. It's an others-oriented mission. It's a blessing all the peoples of the earth who are cursed under God mission, right? So by definition, the holy nation cannot be self-centered, right? We cannot be group-centered. We ought not to be church-centered. We ought not to be Bethany Baptist Church-centered. We ought not to compete with other churches. We ought not to compete with those who are not Christian. We're not competing with them. We are sent to serve them. We're sent to bless all ethnic people groups, aren't we? With the gospel, with God in the center, with, for God's glory, we are, to, to, to thrive as a church means to not be selfish. The way to thrive is to be selfless, Right? The way to thrive is to think about others who don't have Christ, other people groups, and to lay down our lives for their good, the way Christ laid down his life for our good and for those who would come to him. That's our mission. Okay, so that's point eight. That's point eight, is that the church is the one called to this mission. Okay, I hope that we don't disagree on any of those points. 
Those are biblical points, right? Now I'm going to apply it to our situation today here. So here's some application. Uh, point nine, and the way I stated this point, you're not going to disagree with it, but when I get to details, you might. Point nine is we are called to faith and obedience. We are called to serve and not be selfish, self-centered, or group-centered. That's the application. That's point nine. Now, you, you should agree with that if you're a Christian. But let me, um, let me start to apply this. So we, we obviously care about fighting sin in our lives. We want to repent from sin. So we must avoid personal prejudice against others based on their skin color, ethnicity, language, or background. We must turn away from thinking our ethnicity or social group, not just the church, but your ethnicity, whatever that is, Filipino-American, Asian-American, if you want to go broader, um, American, if you want to go broader than that, right, um, Western, civil, Western civilization, if you want to go broader than that. We must not think that our group is greater than and, and use it as a, as a, as a member of a, of a social group to not use it to oppress other people. Christians ought to, to fight against that, to think that our group is superior to other groups and other groups are for us, that we ought to exploit them for our good. We understand personal sin, right? Do you understand that people can sin unintentionally? Psalm 19, 12 says this, who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. So we could be sinning with ethnocenteredness unintentionally, right? Do you understand that, that we could do that? So, um, so, so I think we all agree there, but now here's where we might start to disagree a little bit because I aim as a pastor, as one of the pastors, my aim, I feel like my, I think, believe my responsibility in discipling faithfully our church on this is to disciple you to oppose not just ethnocenteredness, we should all agree on that. But what, I'm, what I do is I'm also trying to encourage members and disciple members to oppose ethnocentric oppression. That's a step beyond ethnocenteredness. That's actually saying that there, is, that there are group dynamics here in our society today that's actually pressing down unrighteously on certain groups of people, and we need to, we need to discern that. We need to care about that. We need to love our neighbors as ourselves, as imagine what it's like to be in that situation and love them in that. That's what I'm calling us to do. The debate is whether there's actually ethnocentric oppression or not. I'm not going to argue for that here. I argued for that last sermon last year. You could listen to that online. But let me give you a little bit about USA history here, just as we apply it to our context, okay? So race is a social construct. Have you heard that before? Race, the, the, the concept of race is a social construct. It's not a spiritual construct. It's not a biblical construct. And it's not a biological construct, it's not a biological construct. It's a social construct. And the reason why it's social, a social construct is because it was invented in light of preserving the economic um, benefit of owning slaves. Okay? It was, it was, it was, it was made up to, to, to guard the economic benefit of owning slaves. And so um, we, we can talk about the... So that, that's the first thing I want to say is that... Um, Race is a social construct. And let me get to the second point that there is an, ident an idea and identity of whiteness that is not from, the, from Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, what are the groups based on? Remember all the groups separated? How did they separate? What's the, what's the basis of their separation? What is it? Language. Language, not what? Not skin color. Not skin color. Language. Okay, so when you start separating groups based on skin color, that doesn't come from the Bible. Okay, that comes, that, that, that's a social construct where a group of people decide that this is how we're going to divide the, the society. So the idea and identity of whiteness is not a biblical category, though it is a social reality because it is a social construct. Which is why I personally, you don't have to do this, but I, I avoid using the terms um, 
white and black. Not, I, I know that could be good arguments for using it, but personally, I stay away from them because it's just it's 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 fronting the skin color as the dividing the dividing line, and I think that's just not helpful. So I just tend to say European American or African American or Asian American or Latino American. If we're talking about Americans, very specifically, but. Um, but all that to say, the idea of whiteness is not from the Bible or just it's always been there. It actually started with, um, with, with the, the, the slave trade and things along that line. So, so when I think about the idea and identity of whiteness, just a few things here for you to think about. Um, whiteness is three things. It's elastic. It's based on physical appearances. And it has social effects. Okay. It's elastic. What I mean by that is, um, so for example, historically, the Irish, when they first came to the, to the United States, they were not considered white because they were Roman Catholic. And it was white, Protestant, Anglo, English, really. It was kind of what it was first. And then you start having those, the Anglo part, English descent, and the Protestant kind of fell off eventually as time went on. But it was white, Protestant, Anglo, um, Anglo, Anglo right? So, so when the Irish came, they were not Anglo, or English, and uh, they were not Protestant. And so they were not, they were not legally white when they first came, but eventually they became legally white. And there's more to it. You could look at the history of it, but all that to say that, so the, the phrase white is elastic, okay? Secondly, it's based on skin color, not even on biology or DNA, okay? I'm gonna skip over that now, even though that's kind of obvious. But the third thing is um, the idea and identity of whiteness causes has certain social effects, or another way to say it is um, Michael Emerson has says, we live in a racialized society, and I, I sent you guys a video for the church members. It's going to be sent at 1 o'clock p.m. today, so you can watch that before tonight if you'd like. But he says here, race matters profoundly for the differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. Do you guys get that? This is what it means to be in a racialized society. Not everyone's racist. That's not what we're saying. But to be in a racialized society means that the concept of race has so affected our society that it, it, profoundly, it, it profoundly affects the differences in life experience, life opportunities, and social relationships. So who you marry, often like large, I mean, I know there's inter, they call it interracial, like inter-ethnic uh, marriages, but those are still statistically low, right? Um, they, they ought not to be as low as, as are the melting pot of these cities, but they are still low. Uh, so who you marry, where you live, who you know, even where you'll go to church. Which is why, even BBC, which is why many of you drive past many gospel preaching churches to come here. There could be different reasons for that. But all that to say... Um, we are in a racialized society, not a racist society. I'm not using that word here, but a racialized, where the construct of race dramatically affects life in these ways. Okay? And, and that's all we're saying. So, so, so those things are real in the society. You need to recognize that, and then you need to love your neighbors wisely in light of it. All right. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's go back to the Bible here. Okay, back to the Bible. Because I need to give you a, a biblical category here that you need to understand. You need to understand corporate sin. Do you guys know that we can not only sin by individuals, but we can sin as a group? Do you guys understand that? There is corporate sin. Um, Israel failed to keep the covenant, so they were exiled. Churches can fail to excommunicate, right? In Revelation 2 and 3, the church of Pergamum and Thyatira, Revelation 2, 13 to 2:29, those two churches, Pergamum and Thyatira, they had failed to discipline false teachers and members who were holding a false teaching. So you could be obedient as an individual member and your church fails. 
our church used to have a, a membership role of 1,109 people. That was a failure for us, not as individuals, but as a church. BBC was failing as a church in caring for all of those members who weren't here anymore. That's a, that's a corporate responsibility, not merely a private personal responsibility. So do you guys understand corporate responsibilities? Okay. Now, here's what I want to get at. <clears throat> There's two more categories I want you to think about. There's such a thing as corporate unintentional sin. And secondly, there's such a thing as personal obedience, yet corporate sin for your group, where you're personally obedient in the group, but your group has failed and you're part of the group, and so you're also pulled down in that group failure, okay? Those are two concepts I want you to grasp. Corporate, unintentional sin, and then um, sinning, sinning group in, a, in a group sense, even though you're righteous in a personal, individual sense, okay? Let me just go through these briefly. Corporate unintentional sin. Look at 2 Kings 23, 21 to 23. 2 Kings 23. I have like five examples here. I'm just gonna do one biblical one. I had two. I had an Old Testament and New Testament. My New Testament one is um, the church abandoning their first love, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. They were faithful and unintentionally they were sinning by abandoning their first love. So Christ rebuked them and said, I'm gonna take out your whole church lampstand. Okay, so that's corporate sin in the New Testament, unintentional, but it's there. 2 Kings 23, I want you to see unintentional sin here. 2 Kings 23, verses 21 to 23. Look at this passage here. This is King Josiah, a great name for a child, if you're thinking of one. We have a Josiah in our church already. The king commanded all the people, observe the Passover of the Lord, your God, as written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover had been observed from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Lord's Passover was observed in Jerusalem. Okay, the Passover was a command to who? The nation of Israel. How many times were they supposed to do this command? Once a year. It hasn't been done since when? The times of what? The times of the judges before King Saul. This is at least a 400-year gap. 400 years of not obeying this command. So who's failing? Not just individuals, but who? The nation of Israel as a group. And you could say, I want to take the Passover. But if no one else does, guess what? They're not doing it. And you know why they didn't do it? They didn't know they were supposed to do it. Josiah, in his 18th year, found the book of the covenant. Somebody read it out loud. He's like, wait, we're supposed to do what? Can you read that again one more time? We're supposed to do what? Oh, man. And so they go back and do it. But for the first 17 years of his reign, did he obey the Lord? No. Did, his, did the nation obey the Lord? No. Did they intentionally disobey the Lord? No. They were just doing what we've always been doing. Okay, you need to understand this. Just because you're not self-consciously doing something wrong, you're born into a society that has societal negligence unintentional sins. Maybe even it, maybe it began as intentional sins. But it can roll eventually, generation after generation, it can eventually become an unintentional sin. And guess what? You can still be guilty of it. And your group can be guilty of it, even when you did not intend to disobey that command. Does that make sense? You see that? That happens. And my point is that this, at least you have to say, it can be happening today. This happened um, with... Uh, the Southern Baptists in 1845 as a group, they failed with, um, or Jonathan Edwards, I assume Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest pastor theologians I've been reading on Edwards' life. I assume he had a clear conscience, but he owned slaves. And, um, and so 
I, I assume it was unintentional, but still sinful, right? But he grew up in a society where people, where people with his skin color owned slaves, right? English colonists, they owned slaves. And so he wasn't doing something way out there. Churches, pastors owned slaves, Christians owned slaves. And so, but that doesn't make it right. It could be unintentional, but it was there. It was there. Okay, so, um, and groups can fail even if you are not failing. So you guys know that I've been doing my devotions in Genesis, and uh, in Genesis 40, whatever, somewhere in the 40s, um, they sell, oh no, Genesis 37, yeah, Genesis 37, they sell Joseph into slavery. Is it 37? Maybe 36, sorry. Um, they sell Joseph into slavery. Now there's, Joseph has 11 brothers, that's not 11, that's six. Uh, six plus five more. 11 brothers. And uh, there were 10 brothers because the younger brother wasn't there. But the 10 other brothers um, decide to throw him in a pit. And the oldest brother was the Kuya, if you're Filipino. The Kuya said, I'm going to take him out when the brothers aren't looking. Yeah, yeah, let's put him in a pit. But when he's done, like when the brothers go away, I'm going to take him out and bring him back to dad. Well, when, when Reuben was eating lunch somewhere, the other brothers decided to sell him to slavery. Now, the brothers as a family have a responsibility to take care of Joseph, Right? Did they fail as a family? Did Reuben fail? Yeah, did Reuben have good intentions though? He had good intentions. He wanted to save Joseph. That was his intention. But intentions are not enough. He did not save Joseph. He failed as an older brother personally. He also failed, they failed as a group. And so you can fail uh, as a group even though you're, you're faithful as, a, as an individual. So for example, uh, and you're going to hear this next week in next week's sermon. I'm pro-life. I'm against abortion. But you know what? I'm also an American citizen. And as a society of Americans, I know not all of what everyone here is an American citizen, but I am. As a society of citizens, guess what? We are guilty of killing babies. Just under 3,000 a day or something like that. I'm not saying they, the pro-choice, are, are guilty. No, we as a society, as a group, are guilty, and I'm part of that group. Even though I personally oppose it and want to disciple against it and work against it, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean I could just be outside of a group. No, I, I exist in a society. I didn't choose it, but I'm here. I'm part of the society. And so we're guilty. Do you guys see the corporate responsibility versus individual? And there's an interplay between the two, but you can fail corporately even as you succeed personally. To give a basketball analogy, if the goal is to win uh, the NBA championship and LeBron James scores 100 points and he averages 100 points for seven games, but his team loses, did his team succeed or fail? They failed. Now, he might have been the best player on the court, but that's not, that's not success in terms of the mission, right? And so the corporate mission. And so there is corporate unintentional sin. And in case you're saying, PJ, those are stories that's not biblical, turn one more passage to Numbers. And then we'll, we'll close here with some application. Look at Numbers 15. Numbers 15, verses 22 to 26. Now, if you're saying, PJ, you're just kind of making this up, and I don't know if it's really biblical that there's corporate unintentional sin. Well, look at Numbers 15, 22. When you all sin unintentionally, you're saying, PJ, it says you, it doesn't say you all. Okay, it, even if it does in the Hebrew, let's just go with English. When you sin unintentionally and do not obey all these commands that Yahweh spoke to Moses... All that Yahweh has commanded you through Moses from the day Yahweh issued the commands and onward throughout your generations. And if it was done unintentionally, without the, whose awareness? Community's awareness. The entire community is to prepare a young bull 
for a burnt offering as a pleasing aroma to Yahweh, with its grain offering and drink offering according to the regulation, and one male goat as a sin offering. The priest will make atonement for the entire Israelite community so that they may be forgiven. Why? For the sin was what? Unintentional. They are to bring an offering, a food offering to Yahweh, and their sin offering before Yahweh for their unintentional sin. The entire Israelite community and the alien who resides among them will be forgiven since it happened to all the people unintentionally. They didn't know. They weren't aware. They were not intending to be sinful, just like many people today don't intend to be ethnocentric ethnocentered or even ethnocentrically oppressive or perpetuate ethnocentric oppression. You don't have to intend to do it. You don't have to be self-conscious about doing it. But it can be happening personally and it can be happening corporately as a group dynamic. You're saying this is a covenant community. Well, look at God denounce all kinds of people for injustice, all kinds of nations for injustice who are not in the covenant community in the prophets. It's not just covenant community people who can do corporate sin. Okay, groups can do corporate sin, as we learn from the Tower of Babylon. Okay, so I, I want you to say, you might disagree with me on how this applies to America, but you need to agree with me, brothers and sisters, that there is corporate unintentional sin. Okay, you need to, you need to be, so here's my application, lastly. Four applications, and then we're going to close in prayer. What do we do now? Four applications, specifically. Realize, learn, love, and disciple. Realize, learn, love, and disciple. Realize, number one, realize that we can be unintentionally sinning, personally and corporately. And I just said we can be. I'd argue elsewhere that, that, that it is happening, but I'm not arguing for that here. But you need to at least realize that we can be sinning. Number two, learn. Learn about ethnic challenges and tensions presently in our society. So you can learn that by reading history and by looking at current data. I sent you, I'm going to send you uh, a video by Michael Emerson. It's gonna be posting at one o'clock p.m. Watch the video. Uh, even this afternoon or tomorrow for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, watch the video and, and learn about our society. Secondly, in terms of learning, I'm still under learn, learn from other people by listening with intentionality and grow and understand a person and their different experiences. Learn to, learn to understand and respect other people's perspectives, even though you might disagree in terms of preference or, or conviction. That's okay too. Just look around here and ask other people for things about their background, their upbringing, their ethnicity, their culture, and just learn about it. Learn about it from other members and from neighbors. I want to recommend that you buy and read the book Talking About Race by Isaac Adams. Um, we, we, we have about uh, 10 that we're going to put in the book stall back there. I might give away two or three tonight in our evening gathering. Um, you could buy it online, but uh, it's, it's, it's a good story about a church that has different members who are all wrestling with a, a recent news event and how different members should think about that biblically. Different ethnic groups should think about that biblically. It's really, really helpful. Talking about race by Isaac Adams. All right, that's the second thing. So learn, learn about it. So third, love. Love your neighbors as yourself. You're saying, PJ, we already know that. Love your neighbors as yourself. Yes, I know that. But what I'm aiming for in this sermon and next week's sermon on abortion and unborn neighbors as yourselves is Philippians 1.9 where it says, let your love abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Loving intentions without loving discernment can still be a lack of love. Do you get that? Loving intentions without a loving discernment can still be a lack of love. So I've told somebody the story. I have a friend uh, who is, who's parenting 
And uh, his, he loved his son so much that he never wanted his son to hear the word no. And he would never spank his child. And he would never tell, like him and his wife just agreed, we'll never tell our child no, ever. <laughs> you can imagine what that looks like, right? So they're hiding in the closet with their cell phone because their kid wants the phone when they see the phone. And they don't want to tell him no. So they're, they're talking to us on the phone and they're whispering, hey, yeah, it's me. And you're like, oh. but, but they, they love their child. Loving intention, but there's a lack of discernment on what love looks like. Okay, so you need to not just love your neighbors, your African-American neighbors and other ethnic minority neighbors as yourselves. You need to discern their actual situation. Intentions are not good enough. They're good. They're not good enough. You need to actually learn. So love your neighbor with discernment, which goes back to the second point, which is learn. So you could discern. And then third, I mean fourth, sorry, last one, is disciple. Brothers and sisters, Bethany Baptist Church, keep your focus on the priority of the Great Commission. What are we called to do? Go, therefore, and disciple all ethnic people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything Christ commanded. So, brothers and sisters, dis, um, keep your focus on discipling, on gospelizing, on discipling people so that they would repent and trust in Jesus and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives, on establishing churches, and on multiplying more churches among all ethnic people groups in general and among distressed and neglected ethnic minority groups in particular. Let me close before I pray with a commendation to BBC. Two reasons. One is Creek Collective and Shepherd LA. BBC, you have agreed and we have decided as a church to contribute to the Creek Collective. The Creek Collective's mission is to plant and revitalize gospel-driven churches among neglected and distressed ethnic minority communities. That is one way that we're trying to obey loving our neighbor as ourselves in light of the situation. The second way that you have been a blessing, BBC, and I commend you for it, is Shepherd LA. There are at least two churches in ethnic minority distressed and neglected communities. And we've blessed other pastors in other communities and churches through our Shepherd LA initiative. And that's your initiative. That's your ministry, BBC. So as a church family, I mean, Compton is six miles that way, right? La Mirada, Biola is six miles that way. Compton is six miles that way. And here we are in the middle. And God has called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So brothers and sisters, you are doing well as a church. Let's keep abounding more and more in love with all knowledge and discernment. All right, let's ask God for help now in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your help. Who is sufficient for these things? We are small. Our efforts seem negligible, uh, infinitesimally small, irrelevant, and ineffective. But Lord Jesus, you told us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, for our labor is not in vain because Jesus rose from the dead. So Lord, bless us in seeking to learn from each other. Bless us in loving each other and loving our neighbors of different ethnicities as ourselves. Guide us, Lord to fulfill the great commission of discipling our neighbors and the nations for Christ's glory among the nations. We need your help, Lord. So grow us, we pray. Strengthen us and help us to realize that we might be sinning in some ways and help us to be soft in heart and ready to repent. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, friends, go ahead. Uh, what we typically